Savannah's Act has passed in the United States, giving more hope that missing and murdered Indigenous persons' crime statistics will be accurately recorded and reported, and then the cases investigated effectively. But with the passing of the Act, some wonder who will be counted as a Native American. Today, we are going to cover three cases of Indigenous women in Colorado, one with roots in Canada, another in Mexico, and the third in the United States. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to our third Thursday episode on missing and murdered Indigenous women. For those listening, when this comes out, you'll check your calendars real quick and realize I have the wrong day. But if you are in the U.S., look again at the calendar. Today is the federal holiday of Columbus Day, celebrating the arrival of Christopher Columbus in the Americas. It is a federal holiday here in the U.S., but not all states recognize it. Some have state holidays instead that are different. South Dakota was the first in 1990 by declaring the second Monday in October not Columbus Day, but Native Americans Day. Most of the places that have adopted a non-Columbus holiday have called it Indigenous Persons Day. Hawaii calls it Discoverers Day, recognizing the Polynesian explorers who discovered and inhabited the Hawaiian Islands. So basically, when I realized that my missing and murdered Indigenous women's case was scheduled to come out the week of Columbus Day, I thought, I think it's more effective if we just do it on Columbus Day. I, of course, don't want to come across like I'm saying that to recognize Indigenous Persons Day, we should talk about violence against Indigenous people. But my show is a true crime show, so obviously we are going to be talking about true crime. I will leave in the show notes a few links to some Etsy shops of Indigenous artists that I have enjoyed looking at their work, and I encourage you to support them and keep them in mind as you are holiday shopping this year. Okay, so let's get to the cases. These are three cases that have not gotten the coverage that they deserve or need, as all three are cold cases. We are going to talk about the murders of Jerry Foland and Sue Feather Nightwalker, and we're going to talk about the disappearance of Angelica Sandoval. So let's talk about Jerry Foland first. She was found murdered alongside her friend Michael Larson. As with a lot of the cases I have covered and will cover, I found this one on the Justice for Native Women website. That website is a great tool and an online record keeper for these stories that aren't getting told anywhere else. Jerry Foland was born Agnes French in Glenboro, Manitoba, Canada, to a large and very close First Nations family. She was born in 1962, one of Thomas Walker and Mary French's eight children. After Thomas died when Jerry was still pretty young, Mary moved the family to the Swan Lake First Nation Reserve, which is about 30 to 40 minutes from Glenboro. They are Anishinaabe, and originally from the Lake Superior and Lake Winnebago regions. The Swan Lake Reserve is very close to their original lands, though some bands and tribes had been pushed westward during European taking of land. 
the land they were left with in Manitoba was largely unsuitable to European crops, which is why they were allowed to settle there. Jerry lived with her family until they became victims of the 60s scoop. I really did not expect to come across the 60s scoop in a U.S. case, which is frankly due to my own ignorance. We've talked about this before, so I'm just going to cover it very briefly. This was a child welfare policy that actually started in the 50s and it lasted until the 1990s. Indigenous children in Canada were removed from their parents and very quickly adopted out to white, middle-class families in Canada, but also in the United States. The podcast Finding Cleo explores one family's experiences as they reconnect and try to find out what happened to one of their siblings, who they heard had been murdered in the United States. I always recommend everyone listen to that podcast because it is one of the best podcasts out there of all time. And it's because of Finding Cleo that I can say that I should have realized we may come across a case of a 60s scoop child among the missing and murdered Indigenous people in the United States because I know that the adoptions occurred to the United States. Unfortunately, Jerry and the rest of the Walker French children were swept up in this. Jerry and two of her siblings were adopted by a couple in Minneapolis, Minnesota. But in the 1980s, after she turned 18, Jerry found a way to make contact again and showed back up at the reserve to be with her family. As a U.S. citizen, though, she did return to the U.S. to enlist in the Navy with the hopes of getting a good education. She was really drawn to mechanics, but also law enforcement, and she did end up getting accepted into the police academy in Denver, which is how she ended up in Colorado. The time, though, between her military service and her death is not easy to fill in. We do know that Jerry did marry, which is what gave her the surname Foland, and she had two children, a son and a daughter. And somewhere over the years, Jerry began to depend on alcohol to cope with past trauma and possibly to medicate some mental health struggles. We know childhood trauma plays a role in making someone vulnerable to addiction. In 2002, 38-year-old Jerry found herself living in a homeless encampment in Colorado Springs, Colorado. She struck up a friendship with 37-year-old Michael Larson. Michael had become homeless after his girlfriend kicked him out due to his own alcoholism. Michael and Jerry stuck together, though there is no indication they were romantically involved. They just got along well and looked out for each other. And they were the types who didn't just look out for themselves or each other. They looked out for everyone. They were known for being incredibly generous, and it's really remarkable when you think about how little they had. But if they knew someone else needed something more than they did, they gave it to them. The area they were camped out in was a wooded space behind a subsidized housing complex. They lived in two tents and managed to make a living space for themselves under these circumstances. They had a table to eat at. They had a space where they stored the food that they would get from the shelter or the food pantry. 
and they would invite other people to come and eat with them. Michael would get temporary work as a day laborer whenever he could, but otherwise the two lived off whatever they made panhandling. In the spring of 2002, the police came into that wooded area and warned Michael and Jerry, another couple that was in the same basic area with them, and I think some other people, they told them they all were going to have to clear out. The land was private property, and they had received a trespassing complaint. On June 16th, the police went back to the camp to make sure that everyone had left. As they approached the tents, they immediately saw Michael's body outside one of them. He had been viciously stabbed in his neck multiple times. On opening the tent, they then found Jerry's body. Michael's cause of death was quickly ruled to be the multiple stab wounds to the neck, but it wasn't immediately clear what Jerry's cause of death was. Authorities said they needed to wait on additional autopsy results. It was later revealed that she had also been stabbed to death. It initially seemed odd to me that they wouldn't be able to tell that right away, but then I read an article that said there was mutilation involved, so it's possible that the attack on Jerry was that much more violent. The police did immediately start investigating. They collected a lot of evidence from the woods. Reports say they scoured the area for days, bagging up whatever they found. The other couple that stayed near or with Jerry and Michael had been away from the area at the time police believed the murders occurred. And everyone else in the woods left pretty shortly after the police started combing the area. Many of them were afraid to go back there after this attack. Jerry and Michael were such kind, caring people, and there seemed to be absolutely no reason anyone would want to harm them. And the thought of a random attack like that left everyone feeling very vulnerable. However, it doesn't appear like they were robbed either. And the attack was so brutal that the police were not, at the time, leaning towards this being a random attack. This looked personal. And there was a suspect who rose to the top of the list early on, a man named Kenneth Maturas. A few weeks before Jerry and Michael were found dead, Kenneth had raped Jerry and threatened to kill her if she went to the authorities. However, he did have an alibi that checked out. Kenneth was an hour away living in Denver during the time surrounding the murders. Though he couldn't be tied to the murders, he was charged for the rape, and in 2003, he was sentenced to five years in jail. But nothing has come up in the investigation to implicate him in the murders or to crack his alibi. Jerry's family had her body brought back to the Swan Lake First Nation Reserve, where the family held a traditional wake prior to her burial. Unfortunately, I have not been able to find Michael Larson's obituary to learn more about him or his life. The lead detective on this case said many years ago, 
that they have a lot of evidence. What they needed were witnesses to come forward to help make the evidence make sense and to lead them in the right direction. So if you have any information on the murders of Jerry Foland and Michael Larson, you can call Crime Stoppers at 719-634-STOP. That's 7867. The next case we're talking about today is one that highlights this major issue that I introduced briefly at the top of the episode about the reporting of missing and murdered Indigenous people, and that has to do with racial classification. In the United States, according to our census, American Indian and Alaska Native is a single race designation, and it is defined as someone who has origins in any of the original peoples of North and South America, including Central America, and who maintains tribal affiliation or community attachment. Looking through the Colorado cold case database, we do see that Native American is the designation they have for this, and they did check that box on Jerry Folan's profile. But it seems from what I observed that they are less likely to check that box if the person is from Mexico, Central, South America. So when we talk about making sure we have accurate numbers on the cases of missing and murdered Indigenous people, the only way we can do this is if we define what that means. I'm going to tell you right now that deciding who is Indigenous enough is not my place. It will never be my place. This is not my conversation. And I hope as the Department of Justice puts Savannah's Act in place, they start considering maybe this isn't their conversation either and they need to discuss this and allow the tribes to have the final say on what would make someone classified as a missing and murdered Indigenous person in the United States. So I'm curious how police jurisdictions who decide how they racially classify people are handling situations where the person is Indigenous but they are indigenous from Peru, or they are from Mexico, or their ancestors are. In looking through the Colorado cold case database, what I saw was a lot of people being listed as, quote, other race. I saw it again and again and again. The vast majority of other race cold cases appear to be those who are non-white Hispanic. Hispanic is not a race. It is an ethnicity. And you can be white and Hispanic. In those cases, the police would check the Caucasian box. But in the cold case database from Colorado, if the person had medium or deeper skin tones, they were marked other race. It's not clear if there was an attempt made to identify what that means. Do they identify as white? Do they identify as biracial? Do they identify as indigenous? We don't have nationwide policy and procedure on how police departments racially classify victims. We talked about this in the Alyssa McLemore case, where she has been classified as Asian in numerous places, even though she was an Alaskan native. And this issue is playing into the next case we're talking about, the disappearance of Angelica Sandoval. 
She is listed on the Justice for Native Women website. However, the Colorado Cold Case Directory has her listed as white. Another missing persons website has her race listed as Hispanic, which we've already covered is not a race. So as it stands now, Angelica would be excluded from the official count of missing and murdered Indigenous women. But let's go ahead and get into the case. Angelica was the oldest of six children, born and raised in Alamosa, Colorado, which is in the southern part of the state, not too far from the New Mexico border. Even before she went missing, Angelica was the victim of a violent attack. It was after midnight on November 19, 2010, when 21-year-old Angelica was woken up by a man on her bed pushing her face into a pillow. She felt a gun press against her neck, and the man said, don't move or I'll kill you and your baby. He then put a second pillow on Angelica's head and taped them together, essentially preventing her from seeing much. He pulled her by the hair into the living room, and he demanded money. Angelica went through her purse, only able to see through a small gap in this pillow and tape contraption on her head. She had $200 in cash there, which is quite a bit to have in your purse, but she also worked as a waitress, so it was pretty likely her tips. The man then dragged Angelica back into her bedroom and tied her up. He began to sexually assault her, but she cried and she begged him not to rape her in front of her daughter, 11-month-old Lariah. This apparently was enough to make the man back off, and he took off yelling something about his gang, which was either to intimidate her or to let her know this was a targeted attack. When he left, Angelica first checked on Lariah, and after finding her okay, she called 911 at 1.30 in the morning to report the home invasion and assault. Angelica told the responding officers that she knew who the man was. He had his face covered, but she was able to see his neck tattoos when she looked through that small gap in the pillows. She also recognized his voice. She didn't know this man well. He was just a passing acquaintance. And because she didn't really know him, she didn't know his real name. She only knew that his street name was Demon. She gave his basic description and a description of the tattoo she saw. After talking to the police, Angelica and her mother checked into a hotel for the night with the baby. Though Angelica lived with family, she would be alone some nights, and after this, she was understandably afraid to be alone pretty much ever. Fortunately, the information Angelica gave was enough for Alamosa detectives to track down this demon guy pretty quickly. His name and street name were in their files. He was 29-year-old Jose Moraz. Angelica was able to identify him, and he was charged with menacing, robbery, kidnapping, assault, and cruelty to a child. And he also had some probation violations stemming from previous drug convictions. While Jose was held in jail pending trial, 
Angelica did the best she could to move on, even though she knew she was going to have to testify in court against him in early March 2011. It was about a week before they were due in court when Angelica went to the laundromat with Lariah. It was February 23rd, which was a Wednesday, and this was just a routine chore she was trying to get done that night. When she got home, it was after dark, around 9.50 p.m. Angelica brought Lariah and her car seat into the house. She also had some of the laundry with her. But then she went back out to the car to get the rest of the laundry and her purse. When Angelica didn't come back inside, after a few minutes had passed, her brother went out to see what she was doing, and she wasn't there. The keys were in the door lock to the car, and the back door was open like she had started getting the laundry out. Her purse was found on the ground outside the car. Without her purse, her cigarettes, her phone, and most importantly, without asking someone to watch Lariah, her family immediately knew that Angelica didn't just leave of her own free will. She never would have just left her baby like that, so they called the police. Because Angelica was a witness in an upcoming case against a suspected gang member, a task force of four experienced local officers and two FBI agents was formed to investigate this case. They got together within 24 hours of her disappearance. While Jose was suspect number one, he was in jail at the time awaiting trial. If he was involved, there was someone on the outside who did the actual kidnapping. Jose did have the most to gain from her disappearance. Angelica didn't have a complicated life. She didn't have a complicated love life. She was in a relationship with Lariah's father, but he was locked up himself at the time. Her life was mostly just focused on supporting her daughter, raising her, and trying to build a life so that when Lariah's father got out of jail, they could be a family. Her connection to having a gang member like Jose as a passing acquaintance sounds geographical to me. Based on her posts on social media from just less than a week before she disappeared, Angelica was complaining about living in a disadvantaged neighborhood, She posted how she appreciated that at least she wasn't homeless and they had what they needed, but she also said she hoped they would be able to move somewhere better soon. There's nothing in any of the reporting that indicates that she had close connections to any gang member. Angelica did not reappear in time for that court hearing, and so Jose gained what he had to gain from her disappearance. On March 2nd, a week after she went missing, the charges against him were dropped. The district attorney said that without her testimony, they just didn't have enough of a case. And if they tried to push ahead anyway and the case was dismissed or it ended in acquittal, they could not bring the charges again if Angelica did reappear. This way, they could bring charges again in the future or at least until the statute of limitations ran out. 
so the search for Angelica continued. And Jose was still held on other charges after the case related to the home invasion was dismissed. Tips came in telling the family where Angelica's body could be found, but none of it panned out. At one point shortly after her disappearance, a message was found in the snow at Zapata Falls, which is less than an hour from her home. It said, help, danger, call cops, Angel loves Lariah. Then there were some arrows pointing in a direction, but following them didn't help. It ended up nowhere with no extra evidence or anything. This may have just been a nasty prank. Jose denied having anything to do with Angelica's disappearance, and he wasn't the only person authorities looked at, but they definitely did look closely at him to see how or if he could have gotten a message out of the jail to organize essentially a hit on a witness. If alive today, Angelica would be 31 years old. She has brown hair and brown eyes. She does have several tattoos. She got one shortly before she went missing, and I'm not sure a picture of that one's available, but the tattoos include paw prints, the word faith, a butterfly, her daughter's name, Lariah, among others. She is 4 foot 11 and 105 pounds. If you have any information, you can call the Alamosa Police Department at 719-580-0057. All right, the last case for today is actually one I have to send a huge thank you to Annie, who helps research some of these cases. This is the one she researched that got us down the path of covering these lesser-known regional cases and putting them all together. This is the case of Sue Feather Nightwalker, who was born in May 1986. Her tribal affiliations were Cheyenne, Arapaho, and Lakota. Her first name is Sioux, and it's spelled S-I-O-U-X in honor of her heritage. Sue lived in Colorado, and in her late teens and early 20s, she did have a few run-ins with the law. The arrests were all for low-level offenses. The worst thing we do see is a charge for child abuse, which is not a low-level offense, but the case was dismissed in 2006 when Sue was 20. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes with child abuse charges, the law will act first and investigate later since it is an emergency situation, and that's possibly what happened here. After 2009, Sue's criminal record ended, and she was 23 years old at the time. While we have not been able to talk to family or friends about Sue and see what happened here, seeing an end to arrests for low-level crimes in someone's early 20s is incredibly common. In the field of criminology, few things researched have stayed this consistent. Peak age crime involvement, according to the FBI, is younger than 25 for all crimes except gambling. And for almost all crimes overall, the median age is under 30. Hormone regulation, increased life stability, and brain development have all been offered as explanations for this. So while we don't know what helps Sue specifically get things together, 
maturity tends to play a significant role. Sue did have two daughters when she started dating a man named Ramon Molina. Sue's oldest daughter, Star, was born with special needs, including cerebral palsy, and she was living for a while with a relative. But the goal was reunification with Sue. And that was something Sue was very actively pursuing. She wanted to get custody of Star back very much. Sue's second daughter lived with her and was very active in learning and performing Native American dances. Sue had grown up very connected to her culture, and she was passing that on. Sue and Ramon went on to have a daughter together in the summer of 2013. Sue had been working in construction while she was also attending college, but she left her job in early 2013 while she was pregnant. She was focused on her kids and her schoolwork, which really seemed to pay off. She made the dean's list repeatedly and was set to graduate with honors. In the fall of 2013, things took a turn, but Sue stayed strong. Her new baby was repeatedly hospitalized. Based on Sue's Facebook, the baby seemed to catch everything going around. And Sue remained in school through all of this, but her attempts to do school and also work fell through because the baby kept getting sick in daycare. The doctors advised Sue to keep the baby at home, since every time she got a respiratory illness, she ended up hospitalized for it. Based on her social media posts, Sue felt incredibly alone through all of this. She didn't feel that Ramon was pulling his half of the relationship in the way she expected, and frankly, in a way she needed when she was dealing with a sick infant. She has another daughter, she's trying to get custody of her oldest daughter, and she's going to school. In November 2013, she and Ramon split up, but they were not apart for very long. In January 2014, they not only got back together, but then they got married. And four months after that, Sue was pregnant again. This time, after three girls, she was excited to be having a son. And something else to celebrate in this time was regaining custody of Star in March 2014. Sue was thrilled. However, not everyone was. Sue believed that the family member who had been caring for Star wasn't upset about the reunification because she missed Star, but rather because Star's Social Security payments were paying her rent. And this put a wedge between Sue and some of her family. It is obvious, just based on her social media postings, that Sue was overcoming a rough past and trauma. It sounds like she had no relationship with her father or his family. Her relationship with her mother was up and down, to say the least, and Sue expressed feeling like people only showed up when they needed something from her. It's clear she had built a wonderfully supportive family by choice with her friend group. They were very supportive of her and had her back, but that can't always fix the loss that comes with feeling disconnected from your family. 
I think it's so important to remember that people carry these emotional scars even when they do like Sue did and turn their life around. She was taking care of her family and absolutely thriving in her business administration degree program in spite of so much stress at home. But you can see her on social media struggling. She was struggling emotionally with things like boundaries, feelings of loss, and being hurt by other people's perceptions of her. Because of how little information there is out there, Annie and I have pieced the story together largely through Sue's social media posts and some court records. And really, when you're reading someone's social media posts and the ups and downs of their daily life, you really do feel like you get to know them in a way that we don't get from newspaper articles. So this has been an interesting experience. I think for both, I think Annie would say the same, that it has been an interesting experience and way to research using social media. Sue's public social media posting slowed way, way down after November 2014. Whether she privated it or she stopped posting as much, we just don't see a lot. So then in February 2015, according to the court records, a restraining order was put on Ramon with Sue and two relatives listed. Colorado does have a mandatory protection order statute, which means they will issue a restraining order to a defendant and it would include any victims or witnesses. They're very commonly given in domestic violence cases. And it's possible that's what happened since multiple people are listed. But it's also possible that this was a civil restraining order that Sue filed on her own. It's not like the courts let us take a quick peek at the case. They just give us the highlights so we don't know the details. Regardless, the order was vacated the following month. If it was a criminal mandatory order, it would be vacated when the case was resolved or dismissed. If it was a civil temporary restraining order, it's possible either Sue didn't go to the hearing or Ramon was able to sufficiently defend himself against it. Regardless of what happened here, the couple was separated in 2015, but not yet divorced when tragedy struck. It was September 2nd, 2015, at not quite 1 a.m., when 29-year-old Sue was found lying in the road by an Aurora, Colorado police officer. Sue had a massive head injury and was bleeding profusely. Because of a witness, we actually know what happened, or at least what appeared to have happened. It looked like a man had hidden in Sue's car and attempted to rob or carjack her at gunpoint. Sue jumped from the car out the passenger side door, sustaining a head injury when she hit the pavement. The witness who saw this tried to follow Sue's car as the man kept driving. But the carjacker fired his gun at the witness, and after both cars had stopped for some reason, he then tried to rob this witness. The man must have fled by the time police got there, and Sue died later of her head injury. There have been no named suspects or additional information in this case. There are no theories of what happened aside from this being a random carjacking. In fact, there are exactly 97 words released by the Colorado Bureau of Investigation 
in regards to Sue's case and what happened that night. 97 words. Annie and I both did searches everywhere we have access, and the two of us combined have a lot of access, and found no other reporting on this case. The Denver Post archives yielded nothing, and when I searched for the Sentinel archives and it showed nothing, it actually said, if you're not happy with the results, please do another search. But I'm not happy with the results, and another search is not going to help me. I don't doubt that there was some reporting done on this case, but there are no digital archives. When reporting isn't accessible to the public, even if it's behind a paywall, if it simply does not exist and we cannot access it, it does nothing to help get the word out about these unsolved cases. And it wasn't just details of Sue's murder that we could not find. We often rely on obituaries to get just the most basic biographical information. But the funeral home that handled Sue's services has years and years of obituaries still up, yet they didn't have one for Sue, and I wonder if one was just never written. When I say this episode was pieced together using Sue's social media accounts, that's what I mean. Her Facebook is standing as a journal to her life, a life that had highs and lows. But what we've really seen, taken on the whole, was a smart and strong woman determined to make the best life for herself and her children that she could. And she was going to do it on her own if she had to. She was tragically taken from her children far too young And that tragedy continues every day. Her killer walks free. If you have any information on the murder of Sue Feather Nightwalker, you can call the Aurora Police Department at 303-739-6050. All of the police contacts for the cases I talked about today, the cases of Jerry Foland, Angelica Sandoval, and Sue Nightwalker will be in the show notes. <laughs> 